I am here with my good buddy, Eric Townsend from Macro Voices, and he's an oil expert. We're going to talk about the future of energy. We're going to talk about oil prices. We're going to talk about supply demand, what's going on in the Middle East. This is going to be an incredible interview. I'm super, super excited. Eric, thanks for coming back to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me back, George. Good to see you. So there is a lot going on right now. Let's start with the oil space. And I know this is something you're you're kind of neck deep in constantly. Uh, I'm assuming you're still trading this daily. And what's going on right now in the Middle East, obviously, is a, is a huge component, huge factor. Uh, so it's not just supply and demand. So kind of give us your overview of what's going on in the oil space right now and where you see it maybe heading in the next six months. Well, my view is very much out of consensus. Most people seem to feel like uh, the Israel conflict has already been priced into the market. I don't think it's at all priced in. I think we have a lot more upside as a potential result of this. What's going on is people are correctly observing, hey, wait a minute, there's no oil production of significance in Israel or in Gaza. So therefore, that immediate conflict can't possibly take any any significant supply offline. Uh, I don't think that's really the main point. I think the main point is that this is a, an epic escalation of uh, a tension that's been you know, persisting for thousands of years. But yeah. in the immediate sense, this is a really big deal. There is absolutely no way that either side can forgive and forget what's just happened. Atrocities on both sides were so... Uh, so so unforgettable and and uh, so gut wrenching so that it's, it's not going away. So I think there is a very real potential that this grows into a regional conflict that affects a number of Arab nations and affects the relationship between the United States and the Arab world because. President Biden has been very adamant in saying, you know, we, we're making unqualified and unreserved, you know, we're taking Israel's side of this period, end of story, that's it. So we've taken a position, and I'm not taking any sides on whether that's right, wrong, or indifferent. The point is, it's a position that potentially polarizes the United States against a very significant part of the world that has a very strong influence over the supply of oil. So I think this is a really big deal. Most people don't seem to think it's nearly as big of a deal as I do. And that includes some very accomplished analysts who've been watching this market for longer than I have. So I guess I'm the odd man out, but I think that the potential for how far this can go uh, is quite extreme. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, what's going on this week in the oil market, oil's been rallying, uh, probably because everybody wants to hedge what might come next geopolitically. Uh, there was last week, if Friday was the big hedge day. I think what happened this week is everybody hedged on Thursday, and now we're seeing that come back out of the market as the market went a little bit uh, too far in terms of people putting weekend hedges on uh, early. So a lot of that's come out of the market on Friday afternoon. Uh, we've retraced about half of yesterday's move up. I wouldn't be surprised toward the end of the trading day today on uh, Friday if we do see the market back move back up as people put on those last minute hedges for uh, what might happen over the weekend. In general, though, I think a lot of uh, risk is coming out of the market or there's a, a big sense of relief that the escalation is about as much as it's going to get. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I think we're just at the very early stages of this. And I think that both oil prices and unfortunately the, uh, the violence in the Middle East is going to increase from here. And this is 
with considering the backdrop of a very tight supply long term? I know you've talked about this on your show quite a bit on Macro Voices, but do you want to explain to people that, hey, when we're considering what's going on in the Middle East, you have to also understand that the long-term supply will most likely be very constrained, and that's not by choice. That's just by the fact that we haven't invested in, uh, in much supply over the last 10 years, and that takes a lot of time to come online. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of factors. I have a actually a, a whole episode of my documentary series about why I think a global uh, oil and gas energy crisis is coming in the middle of the, the present decade. Um, and there's just so many safety valves that have been used up. But right now, what's going on is we have both the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and keep in mind that Everyone is assuming that Russia will continue to uh, to act economically. In other words, they, they need to keep selling as much oil as they can in order right. to, to make right. a living. At some point, your, your geopolitical aims become more important than your immediate economic aims. And if Putin wanted to weaponize oil prices as a tool of economic warfare, he could take oil supply offline intentionally for the purpose of damaging the global economy by by forcing oil prices higher. We already had that risk inherent to the fact that we're coming into a, a new winter season, a, a time of vulnerability for Europe when it would be more likely for Russia to weaponize oil prices. That's happening at the same time as we now have this new situation erupting and, you know, to be clear, what's happening is we're on hold right now because the U.S. is pleading with Israel saying, wait a minute, give us more time to get our American citizens out, to get hostages out, to try to negotiate some uh, hostage releases and do evacuations of Americans that are stuck boots on the ground in Israel before you do your big offensive. You know, right, it's right. Not, not that they're not going to do it. It's not that the U.S. is trying to talk them out of doing it. They're saying, please delay that until we get uh, all of our dominoes in a row here. Something okay, really big is coming. Thing. You know, it, yeah. it's it's certain that there is a big geopolitical escalation coming. And what will the reaction to that be? And, and how will the world respond? We don't know yet, but I think it's a big deal. And, and at this point, it feels to me, especially on Friday afternoon here, as we see most of the hedges that were put on in the last couple of days being taken back off as the market breathes a big sigh of relief here Friday afternoon before a weekend. Um, I think we're, uh, we're being complacent. I think the, the risk is much higher than than traders are, are giving credit for. How much of your base case long-term, uh, with the, as far as from a geopolitical standpoint, stems from the fourth turning? Well, I think we're in the middle of a fourth turning. I think the fourth turning was the, the book that predicted what was coming. As far as, uh, I don't think the fourth turning gives any guidance for how to navigate what's coming. It's, it's no surprise yeah. that... That we're here as far as what's between here and there it seems that we've started these uh these global conflicts between superpowers where the united states china and russia are all sort of being pitted against each other it looks like china and russia if anything are are being pushed into partnership with one another um and uh we now have this uh, you know another major major conflict yeah. 
this is all uh, very reminiscent of World War II, where you had the war right. in Europe and the war in the Pacific were almost started for separate reasons. They were almost two separate wars that just happened to be going on at the same time. And, yeah, and that was the end of the last fourth turning. Yeah, no, that was the end of the last fourth turning. So we know the the second half, the final 10 years of any fourth turning is when it really gets ugly. Yeah. We know that's when this is now. We know last time it was World War II. I think it is already World War III. The thing is, when people hear that phrase, World War III, they, they equate it with imminent you know, nuclear Armageddon. And I'm not predicting that at all. I think that we will avoid uh, nuclear Armageddon and we'll have probably some very serious uh, escalations, maybe even some tactical nuclear weapons used in some escalations. But I don't think we get to a obliterating society. We could get to the other side of this fourth turning, making the world look like a very, very different place than it does now. I think one of the likely changes is that the U.S. dollar's hegemony over the global financial system is likely to be replaced by a digital currency. Now, of course, the Bitcoiners will get all excited and say, okay, this is Bitcoin's big moment. Well, it might be that. It might be a, a CBDC that uh, replaces the U.S. dollar and has the exact opposite effects of what Satoshi intended for Bitcoin. So right. it, the jury's out as to where the digital currency war is going. But I do think that money itself and digital currency will be one of the battlegrounds that is fought in in the rest of this fourth turning and yeah. energy will be another one. And I think, unfortunately, we're headed toward a global oil and gas energy crisis in coming years. Uh, it's self-inflicted. We got here from bad policy and uh, we'll get through it, but it won't be pretty. When you say bad policy, is it just lack of investment? It's primarily lack of investment, but it's it's mostly the the very simple misunderstanding that even though breaking our addiction to fossil fuels is a really, really good idea. You can't phase out fossil fuels before phasing in viable replacements. You got to start with the replacements right. and then you can get rid of what you're replacing. Um, that very, very simple uh, and obvious truism has somehow gotten lost. And we have these uh, these activism groups like Share Action and Just Stop Oil that are misidentifying the problem, the very real problem that we need to solve as a society. The most important challenge we face of this entire century is breaking our addiction to fossil fuels. How? Not by getting rid of oil. That's not the problem. By building this, the clean energy that replaces oil so we don't need oil anymore. We're focused on the wrong thing. We're focused on getting rid of oil when we should be focused on building the clean energy to replace oil. Yeah, I mean, their argument would probably be just playing devil's advocate. Their argument would be, well, it's not happening fast enough. You know, wind, solar, we've got all these other alternatives, but it, it, it's slow moving. And if we wait this long, we're going to get past the point of no return. Well, and I think there's an understandable and intentional attitude for some of the activists who are saying, look, we get it. We know that what we're proposing might have the effect of crippling the economy, and we want it to have the effect because we feel that strongly that that's how important it is to get this right. Mm -hmm. I, I I admire their passion, but I think that they're <laughs> they're 
policies are self-defeating. What that results in is everybody gets mad at you because what you end up doing through your activism is you just make the price of oil and gas go up, but right. you don't provide any alternative. Uh, so we need to focus on providing the alternatives, not on making the price of. Uh, yeah, and, of and to be clear, Eric, just for just for the audience there, uh, what Eric's referring to as far as their activism leading to higher prices is their activism user usually results in lower supply. But you're dealing with an energy that has very inelastic demand. And although the activists want the demand to be cut in half, history teaches us that that, that ain't going to happen. So the only side of the equation you impact is the supply side. Well, and what they're missing is they're trying to attack supply of oil rather than promote supply of something yeah, right. else. They, they, they need to focus on building green energy supply, not on attacking oil supply. But their, effect, their efforts to attack oil supply have been very effective. They've got, you know, every celebrity under the sun is part of this movement to lobby bankers to stop funding oil and gas projects. And they they mean well. They think they're trying to help the cause. They don't realize that the effect of doing that doesn't build any green energy. It doesn't help solve the problem. What mm -hmm. it does do is it sets us up for much higher oil and gas energy prices in coming years. Which makes people much poorer, especially the poor in the middle class, yeah. unfortunately. And that leads to tension between people, and that yeah. leads to you know a bunch of other things, and then you get you know, one problem leads to another and society is breaking down before you know it. And that's what we have in this fourth turning. We don't have any government leadership. The governments are energy blind. They don't understand what's going on with energy supply and why it's going to be more critical in coming years. They have no idea. So, you know, we're going to blunder through this and whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yeah. I remember the last time I interviewed Neil Howe, we were talking about the fourth turning. We were talking about how now we're kind of getting to the end of it. And he said, uh, they always, or, or they usually end in war. I said, well, is there any way to avoid that? You know, I mean, let, let's try to look at the glass half full here. Let's put on our rose colored glasses. He goes, well, I'd like to, but he goes, the only thing I can tell you that every single fourth turning prior to this has ended in, in war. And it was very sobering. One of the most sobering moments I've had doing doing the podcast. <laughs> so, well, and that war has started. The, the, I yeah. don't think people who view the Russia-Ukraine conflict as a Russia-Ukraine conflict have the whole story. That, that's where World War III really began, and it's the U.S. versus Russia and China. And Ukraine is just the Vietnam in this story. It's, right, right. it's not where... The, the real action is going to be politically or geopolitically. What's important is the conflict between the U.S. versus China and Russia. And uh, it's being fought on a number of other battlefields. But that's the conflict that's going to define the end of this fourth turning. And yeah. it's a really big one. And it's not over yet. That's for sure. Yeah. What's going on with the SPR? I know Biden was drawing it down. I just read quickly on CNBC today that uh, he's, or maybe it was Zero Hedge, that he's trying to buy back uh, a bunch of it at, at 78 or something like that. Do you know what's going on with uh, the SPR? I have no idea what the latest machinations are. Biden drained the SPR half of the volume that we had in the SPR right. 
just as we were going into the beginning of this massive uh, end of the fourth turning world war level of conflict with Russia. So it was the most reckless thing that that he could have done. It's left us in a situation where it's not realistic to completely refill it to where it was because that would create so much extra demand that it, it would it would be politically impossible right. to because higher gas prices going yeah. into 2024 right yeah you can't go into an election year saying we're we're rebuilding for the long term and they don't think that way to start with so there's no way it's going to get rebuilt it's going to stay drained down where it is that means that we're less able to respond to being cut off of supply uh, you think well there's nothing that would actually lead to a cut off of supply well suddenly yes there is the the conflict between Israel and Gaza right now hasn't mushroomed to what I think it could become. It could easily lead to full-on conflict between Israel and Iran. It, that could lead to the U.S. participating in that conflict with Iran. That could easily lead to a forced closure of the Straits of Hormuz, which uh, the U.S. would would certainly defend and and try to to prevent. The, there would be. Uh, uh, certainly challenging transits of the Strait of, uh, Straits of Hormuz. You could have a, a complete shutdown uh, of exports from some countries. You could have a change of attitude from OPEC. Uh, and you could also see potentially BRICS countries with with Russia uh, collaborating in some way. Uh, you know, if the logic is the enemy of my enemy is my friend, well, then you would expect as a result of this Israel conflict that any nations that are offended by U.S. supporting Israel, uh, they're going to look at Russia as their friend because that's right. the enemy of the U.S. And they're going to say, yeah. what, do we, what can we do to work together? And the answer is there's a lot they could do to work together in order to undermine U.S. interests. So there's lots of risks here. And I'm not saying they're all going to start happening tomorrow. I'm just saying the market is not pricing in all of the things that could happen, uh, especially as we come into winter. Uh, and, you know, last year we had a very mild winter. A lot of people thought Putin might weaponize oil prices, but the stakes were not that high at that point. The U.S. was still supplying some arms, but mostly staying out of the active uh uh, war conflict. Looks like that's maybe about to change both in the Ukraine and in the Israel theater. So anything could happen here. And I just, uh, I think that there's plenty of upside price risk that's not being considered by the market. Yeah. So I think when most people hear you say that, you know, oil going to 150 a barrel, as an example, the first thing that comes to their mind is, oh my gosh, you know, uh, it that's going to, make oil prices or the price of everything because oil is such a, a huge input for not just the stuff, but also the transportation of stuff. That means inflation, inflation, inflation. What I've been wrestling with a lot lately because M2 money supply is going down. Now, I don't know that the aggregate balance sheet is going down because I think a lot of that M2 is savings. It's just being traded for treasury. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But I know credit is pretty much flat, bank credit, loans and leases. In fact, bank credit's down. Loans and leases are down as well. How do you think that, just let's assume that we stay on this trajectory, that oil goes to 150 a barrel, but yet bank credit, the, the money supply, if you will, the amount of currency units is decreasing. In other words, people's real purchasing power is going down. 
how does what does the CPI do? Is it just robbing Peter to pay Paul? Or you know what I'm saying? Like the price of gas goes way, way up, but they're having to pay that cost. Therefore, the price of other things go down and it's a net wash. How do you see that playing out? Well, I think that the reason you're seeing some dichotomies here is that the underlying drivers of inflation are different. I think that the velocity of money driver that you're talking about that that's revealed by the money supply and so forth is that that's not the story behind inflation right now. I don't think that we have out of control borrowing and reckless spending habits leading to to inflation. What we've got is a geopolitical situation that's completely untenable and a bunch of broken policy that has crippled the oil market to the point where we're going to see energy prices uh, increase and potentially increase dramatically at a time when all the other macroeconomic drivers ought to be asking for disinflation, when we ought to be trying to catch a break because the the economy is not feeling real good right now. Hopefully, oil prices will come down as economic demand comes down. No, well, economic demand is coming down, but oil prices are not coming down because the exogenous effects of wars in the Middle East and so forth have a bigger effect than uh, uh, than the, uh, than those inflation drivers. So I think right. you're seeing different things driving the the inflation, and I think that it really is going to depend on our foreign policy and what happens next in the world. These are really really big events. And what I'm concerned with is it seems that the dialogue in the United States, from what I'm hearing in the news and so forth, is entirely focused on, okay, you know, did Israel get get hit in a, a really un, you know, horrible way that, that Israel has a right to respond to? Well, yeah, obviously they did. That, that shouldn't even be a question. The, the thing is, nobody seems to be asking, is it in the United States' best interest to take sides in this and make it very clear to the Arab world that no matter what happens next, we're going to be on Israel's side no matter what? Um, that is the part of this that I don't think the news media is doing its job of helping Americans realize, wait a minute, your government is not saying this immediate event that Hamas did requires a response and we support that side of it. They're saying we support Israel unconditionally as our partner, no matter what happens next. And I think that that has the potential to cause a lot of the Arab world to really wonder what could be coming and to start to plan accordingly. And I think it's very, very dangerous policy. Eric, how much, let's just assume that they say, okay, U.S., we're not going to import any oil for a certain period of time. Um, I, I know it's, that's doubtful, but let's just take it to the extreme. How much of the demand in the United States can be satisfied by domestic production? And is there a bottleneck with the refining capacity for something such as diesel? Well, you certainly can satisfy U.S. demand. I mean, if you if you took any particular country that might want to have a boycott offline, the U.S. can still source enough oil from North America to stay in business. Right. The thing is, it is a global market in terms of pricing and supply and demand. So what you cannot insulate yourself from is if there is an effect like right. you know an oil embargo type of effect – the U.S. will still be able to get enough 
oil at a higher price to be much able to, price, to yeah, right. at a much higher price. But the higher price effect gets transmitted no matter what, regardless of, of whether you've got enough local supply. The other thing that gets very complicated is the U.S. has plenty of volume of supply, but crude quality matters. And the U.S. Right. has a huge amount of extremely light oil. You need a heavy blend stock, and the best blend stock for blending that U.S. light sweet down into something that the refineries are able to process is you mix it with blend stock that comes from either Venezuela or Iran. Now, it doesn't have to be from one of those two places. Western Canadian Select can also be used in that process. There's other ways of uh, of you know, getting the, the specific gravity and, and the sulfur content to where you need it to be to meet your specifications of what you're, you know, what oil grade you're trying to, uh, to, to produce. But at the end of the day, it gets much harder if you don't have Iran and Venezuela as available sources of blend stock. If those feed sources come offline, then it gets much more complicated as to where the, the blend stock is going to come from in order to refine U.S. oil. So assuming we have those inputs, we do have the refining capacity and we can source it from uh, domestic oil production or at least from North America. Yeah, we do have enough oil capacity. But again, it's a question of price. If you're taking oil offline elsewhere, the price goes up. And we need those inputs that the the major uh, players there are Iran and Venezuela. And I've been reading in the news that we've been kind of talking in a little bit more dialogue with Venezuela than we have been over the last uh, several years. So I I think uh, that makes a lot of sense as to why. Definitely. And um, I I think that, you know, my my advice uh, long ago was if we're going to refill the SPR, we should fill it with blend stock that helps us to downblend the oil that we can produce in the U.S. Oh, we right, have a completely right, right. different situation than when the SPR was set up and when the rules were written. So if you're going to refill it with something, the sensible thing to refill it with is heavy blend stock that you can oh, use right, right. in order to make the rest of the oil that can be produced domestically refinable. Um, but that's not the way it's set up because those weren't the rules back when the bureaucracy set it up. Oh, I didn't know that. So the SPR is is strictly the the light sweet crude that no, we already have access to. No, there there are a bunch of rules for what should be put in it and okay. uh, so forth. But it's not it's not designed around having the blend stock you need to be able to refine the oil that we already have. They weren't thinking that way when they set the rules up. Uh, it does specify, I think, different grades that have to be stored. And I don't remember what the, the breakdown is. But And I think it also may have a requirement that it has to be American-produced oil that goes... Uh, uh, and I'm not, I'm not even sure of that uh, as, to, as to what has to be put there. But it, there's a bunch of rules for, for filling the SPR. And they're not tuned to what I think they should be tuned to. Yeah. Have you been following copper with this, this transition towards EV and uh, kind of this, this greener energy? I know that requires a lot of copper, a lot of nickel and whatnot. Have you been following that or have you been really focusing on oil and nuclear? No, I have been following the copper side of it. I am uh, planning to, to make a private equity investment uh, in a copper mine because I really think that copper is going to be a very important play for the next 
20 plus years. Uh, I think that we ought to be coming into some kind of low in the copper market. I've got my my copper chart is actually behind another chart right now, uh, so I can't I can't see it. But um, the uh, I, I think we're we're going to get down to uh, to three and a half dollar copper, and uh, you know I don't know exactly if we're about to fall into a, a recession. It could be that there's yeah, that much lower to question. go. But yeah, that was my next so question. It's really hard to time these markets, but the low in copper, if it's not already the low, the low that's coming in the recession, whenever that is, that's going to be the the buy copper opportunity of a lifetime. So yeah. I'm already starting to average into that one by looking at private equity investments in copper, which you, know, you, you get a discount that way to the what will eventually be the public share price, but you also don't have control over the timing. So uh, I, I'm doing that. If we get a real washout of copper sells down to two and a half bucks a, a you know, in a in some sort of a uh, a market sell-off wipeout thing, then that would be the buying opportunity where I think copper and copper mining stocks are the place to be. But yeah, I, are we there yet? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's exactly what I've been going back and forth with uh, in my own portfolios. I'm obviously very bullish commodities long term, things like copper. But then you've got th that recession just looking straight in the face. <laughs> you, know, yep. you know, we got that inversion of the curve. Usually that doesn't end well. So it's like, man, if you get this big recession, then that most likely is, is negative for the price of something like copper. So it's like, you know, what do you do? Do you start dollar cost averaging right now? Or do you just wait until we, you know, to see how this thing plays out? It's very difficult for the retail investor because I don't know that they have access to those private equity deals that you might have access to. Yeah, and I think the the thing to do is to buy copper mining shares at the bottom. And well, how do you buy the bottom? Well, nobody knows that. I think at three and a half bucks or wherever we are on copper, it's time to start averaging in. Okay. And um, you know, don't be surprised if you take a loss initially on that because we know there might be a washout coming in the stock market. And if there is that that bottom in the stock market, whenever you think uh, and. You know, the most reliable indicator I know of stock market bottoms is when more bad news comes out and the market doesn't go down any more than it already has, even mm -hmm. when more bad news comes out. That's usually the bottom. The um, when, when you get to that capitulation, that's the time to buy copper and copper stocks. And, you know, a lot of people get miss the boat by waiting for an event like that that never comes. So uh, I don't think you want to miss being exposed to copper at all uh, until then. But if it if that event comes, that's the time to load up. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing 
to the next level. The hard thing is, is that's for, for, for just the way we're hardwired as human beings, that's the hardest time to buy. You know, Eric, it's funny. I remember like it was yesterday. I was in Medellin and I remember exactly where I was, where I was listening to one of your podcasts. This was back maybe uh, April, May or something like that of, of 2020. And you were interviewing, I can't remember who you're interviewing, but you were watching the price of oil in real time. Louis when it Gap. was going negative, when it was going negative, and you're like, and, and, and you, you were like shocked, but you're cute. <laughs> you went on with the interview, and you know we look back, and a, you you kind of punch yourself in the face. You're like, oh my gosh, how could I not buy oil or something, or at least Exxon or something like that when oil is trading at negative thirty eight dollars a barrel. And but but the thing is, is it was very difficult to pull the trigger because, and I remember listening to you a couple episodes prior to that, and you were saying, you know, I think oil could get down to maybe even under $10 a barrel. And I think at the time it was maybe 20. And so I started buying the producers at $20, but I totally agreed with you. I'm like, it's probably going a lot lower, but even buying at 20, that was tough. That was so tough to do to pull the trigger. But now it just looks like a no brainer. So it's interesting that psychological dynamic there. Yeah, and I, I it, it was certainly time to buy then. I think it's time to buy again, and I think that the uh, the variant perception, the the difference between my mm-hmm. perception of this market and the way the rest of the market sees it, is almost as wide now as it was during the pandemic when. Uh, you know, first it was the market had to go down, it had to crash, and then it had to recover as we recovered from the pandemic. Um, it, it's at a point now where I just don't think that that we've priced in what could happen next geopolitically. There's so many things that could take significant uh, amounts of supply offline that are not being hedged as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I know on a podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago, you're comparing it to covid uh, I remember that you and Chris Martinson were talking about that in January and February of 2020, and uh, everyone was just saying, ah, this is no big deal, no big deal. And you're saying today feels very similar with what's going on in the Middle East. Well, it it does. And, and people then were saying, well, but there's no infections outside of China or there's no hospitalizations. There was something outside of China. And I right. was like, yeah, it's a virus. You know, it has to go from one place to the next and travel with people on airplanes. It's going to take a while before there's infections out of China. But why in the world would you think that there wouldn't be any coming just because there aren't any yet? Like, And I think people just needed to hang on to some sign or some signal they had that maybe everything was going to be okay. Well, what's just happened? We already have uh, uh, going into the second winter season, the vulnerable period weather-wise for Europe for Putin energy uh, weaponizing energy prices. That's already happening right now. And we just had the biggest escalation of conflict between Israel and the Arab states in several decades, uh, right. probably the biggest one since 1973. Um, and it's not, I think there is a very significant difference, which is that in 1973, the whole Arab world was very ready to follow Iran into uh, a very strong adamant stance against the United States. And I think that 
that's completely different now. You don't have the whole Arab world ready to side with Iran. Uh, so it is a very different world. But still, the, we're playing with, with fire in um, some of the, the most heated geopolitical theaters in existence. And there's just no limit to how much could go wrong. As, and, you know, the system doesn't have the spare capacity to recover. If, if any one of these actors takes three or four million barrels out of the supply for either intentionally or because somebody blew them up and they they're unable to produce because they, they, they were crippled by a war. As soon as that three or 4 million barrels comes offline, there is no way to recover it. There is nobody who's got spare capacity to make up for that. And if you're Putin or Putin and, or she, you're looking at this and you're just obviously saying, how do I leverage this? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no way they're just ignoring this thing. Oh, I, I hope it uh, blows over. Anyway, what's going on with Ukraine? <laughs> well, it, it, exactly. And I and I don't think everybody that, that I've talked to or, or read in the oil market is assuming that rational expectation theory will continue to operate. In other words, huh. that Russia will continue to operate in its economic best interest. And Certainly, there is a big strategic uh, price to be paid by Putin. If he really were to weaponize oil prices by taking a bunch of exports offline, he would be ending some of that supply permanently because you can't just you know, temporarily turn the, the oil wells off and turn them back on again. You, you shut in an oil well, bringing it back uh, into production is a big expensive process and it doesn't always work. So it's, it's true that it's not as simple as just flipping a valve for Putin to say he wants to weaponize oil prices, but there's plenty of ways for Russia and Saudi Arabia and other OPEC producers to collaborate or make some kind of deal that maybe involves taking oil supply offline elsewhere in the world and so it doesn't affect them but just having a pact between those uh oil producers between russia and saudi arabia and united arab emirates saying we're not going to increase production in order to make up for a shortfall someplace else if somebody else loses oil we're going to just stand pat with where we are right. once you've got that agreement in place all you need to do is arrange for somebody else to lose some oil production and you know, you, you've changed prices dramatically. So there's lots of games that can be played in times of war. And there are a lot of things that could happen here and a lot of moving pieces. Um, I am not saying I predict any imminent thing to happen, but the systemic risks here are huge and nobody's really taking them seriously as far as I can tell. Yeah, looking at it just through the lens of doing what's best economically, if that were the case, China would not have kept their citizens on lockdown for an additional, what was it, two years or something like that. I mean, we've got very recent uh, example of how these big countries uh, might not necessarily act in their economic best interest. Yeah, and, and you know, certainly in this Arab-Israel conflict, um, it, it's a holy war. It, it is yeah, right. very, very important to those cultures. It it's may be bigger to them than oil interests. So mm. the possibility of some sort of oil embargo 
developing is very real. And it's true that it's not 1973 all over again. The politics are very different. Iran doesn't have nearly as much support from the rest of the Arab world as it did in 1973. But still, something very big is possible here. And I think that people are underestimating uh, how much risk exists. Yeah. Eric, let's talk about, uh, well, let's transition into talking okay. about the energy transition. <laughs> All right. I, I brought the shirt for it. Oh, wow. man! I, I think you've got a golf shirt for everything. <laughs> Every single thing you do, you've got a golf shirt for it. But uh, you came out with just an incredible documentary on kind of this uh, transition to the future. And uh, I think you've been very prescient with what's going on with uh, the CBDCs, as an example, with your book. And now you've kind of taken that lens and moved it over to your other area of expertise, which is oil, gas, and just energy in general. So can you talk to us about the documentary and kind of give us the Reader's Digest version of where you see energy moving in the next five or maybe 10, 15 years? Okay. Next five or 10 or 15 years, I don't see very much changing at all. Uh, okay. So in, in your documentary, but, what was your time frame? Uh, we're really talking about the next 25 years out to 2050 oh, of what okay, needs to do that. Let's but, do that. Um, let, let's, I mean, I'll start, start with what I learned about CBDCs from the book. Nobody reads books. So I had to do it as a documentary <laughs> series this time, make it watchable um, and try to take advantage of the YouTube generation. And what I'm really trying to accomplish, George, is I feel that all of the people who have, who have become passionate about climate change really have their hearts in the right place, but I think they're being misled with respect to the reality of both some of the climate science that they're being told is a little bit exaggerated, but mostly they're being lied to about how much work energy transition is really going to be, what it's going to take, how much it's going to cost, how much environmental impact it's going to be, because it's it's one of these things. It's like they, people want to talk about energy transition, and they also want to be anti-mining at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't do both. The, the way you get right. to energy transition is we do more mining than, than humanity has ever done before. Yeah, you got to dig holes in the ground. That, for, well, for whatever you're digging for, it might change, but you got to dig holes in the ground. Well, the thing is, the environmental concerns are very real and I think should be taken very seriously. But there's this huge setup where all these people are being told, like, OK, energy transition, you know, climate, just trust the politicians. They've got a strategy. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to build windmills and solar uh, solar arrays and it, it's all going to get better and everything's going to be great. Um, they're, they're lying. That's just not realistic. Wind and solar are a great start, but if you just do any reasonable analysis of scale, you very quickly realize that it's taken us 25 years to build out wind and solar to the point of supplying less than 2% of wow. our energy needs. We'd have to build 50 times more wind and solar in the next 25 years than we managed to build in the last 25 years in order to be able to replace fossil fuels that way. So wind and solar is a great start, but it's not enough. And what you've got to do is take a credible look at what would it really take to replace fossil fuels. But I start with, wait a minute, don't, don't assume climate change is the only reason to do this because some people believe the climate change rhetoric, some people don't. Uh, for the people that don't, they're saying, wait a minute, the economic cost of energy transition 
is off the charts. We shouldn't do this if it's not proven to really be a problem. Uh, Let's not do it. And my message to them is, look, there's an even bigger reason that's more important than climate change, that we have to transition off of fossil fuels. And that's peak cheap oil, which is it's just going to keep getting more expensive to use oil and gas. We're already at the point where oil and gas cost twice as much as it did when I was a kid, even after adjusting for inflation. Mm -hmm. So energy costs too much right now. We need much cheaper energy than we have now. And we're not going to get that from oil and gas. Where can you get it from? Really, deep geothermal and nuclear are the only choices, the the only realistic choices. And deep geothermal, although it's super cool, is really depends on some breakthroughs that haven't happened yet. If we, and I think they are possible, and I think it, it warrants a lot more research and a lot more investment. If we could have a breakthrough in drilling technology so that we could drill deep geothermal wells as easily as we drill shale oil wells, that would change everything. We'd be able to get as much heat energy out of geothermal as we need to replace fossil fuels. We wouldn't have to do anything else. None of that's true now. We haven't had those breakthroughs. It hasn't happened yet. Until it does, there's no economically viable story for geothermal. There is for nuclear, but nuclear is much more nuanced and it's much more complex because people have, uh, I think, a very legitimate concern or fear about nuclear. There's lots of reasons to be afraid. There's lots wrong with it, but it's not the stuff you think. It's not the meltdown risks and and the hydrogen explosions and the things that have gone wrong in the past accidents. We know how to solve all those problems. The the problems that have to be solved are the cost and schedule overruns that made nuclear energy more expensive than than electricity from natural gas and coal. We need nuclear that's cheaper than coal and gas, not more expensive than coal and gas. And I say that's totally within our reach. We just need to get our act together and do it right. So how do you see this transition playing out? Do you see it... uh is your base case that governments will start to become more receptive to things like nuclear, to real solutions, or do you think they'll continue to be stubborn? I mean, as an example, you know, Germany, I think last year, the year prior used more coal than they've ever used before. So is this going to be kind of an eye opening moment where a lot of the, like the world economic forum and the IMF, the BIS, kind of these global elite influencers will start saying, okay, we tried to go down this path, but maybe we should take a second look at, at nuclear, and all of a sudden that's politically viable again. Um, in Germany's case, it's even worse than you described. They were simultaneously <laughs> decommissioning their nuclear plants while building new coal generation, coal. Yeah. electric generation capacity from coal. So that's just uh, cognitive dissonance. I don't know what to describe that as. It's, that's probably going to get worse because the sentiment in political circles around, you know, let's let uh, teenagers like Greta be in charge of policy and, and just exclaim emotions on, uh, on a public stage and have everyone respond to that. We've got to grow past that and start thinking with our brains about policies that actually make sense. And the policies, uh, I, I think what's going to happen next is we're going to have an oil and gas energy crisis that will be yeah. uh, driven by lack of investment due to ESG. We're going to see oil and gas prices through the roof. That's It's going to be suddenly like the early 1970s. Energy prices 
will be the public, uh, the number one source of uh, of public uh, sentiment upset is going to be anger about energy prices. That'll yeah. be what the political focus turns to. There'll be demands to make it better. The first thing politicians will do is blame foreigners who don't look like us and say it's their fault. That's, you know, start a war with somebody. They'll quickly discover that starting wars is not going to help energy prices. It's only going to make them worse. What we'll eventually get to is the realization that nuclear was staring us in the face really the whole time. The, the nuclear power industry was, uh, I think, taken out intentionally in the 1970s by the Nixon administration um, in order to save oil and gas. It was, it was an intentional, uh, uh, it was an intentional hatchet job that was, that was done then. I cover some of that in, uh, in episode six of uh, energy transition crisis. I talk about what happened to uh, disfavor some of the very best research that was ever done and how that was discarded by the Nixon administration. So we got to get to making sense again. And what I think is the private sector already knows what to do. There's one really, really big, gigantic elephant in the room, and that is nobody in their right mind is going to invest in an advanced nuclear startup. And by advanced nuclear, I mean the companies that are doing molten salt cooled reactors as opposed to water cooled reactors, the ones that are doing liquid fueled reactors. So you can't have a meltdown because there's no fuel rod to melt down in the liquid fueled reactor. The, the startups that are, are working with thorium rather than uranium as the fuel to power the reactor with, the, all the most advanced startups, nobody in their right mind will fund them with institutional capital. Why? Because there's no nuclear regulator on earth that is prepared to even consider permitting one of these new radical designs that's you know completely different than the way everybody's done it. The only thing the regulators know how to regulate is a pressurized water uh, reactor that that's fired by uranium and it runs on low enriched uranium and it wastes 90% of the fuel and that turns into nuclear waste. We've solved all of these problems with much better technology, but we cannot commercialize the better technology that's known about all the, the nuclear guys. They, They've got it on the drawing board. They know in their heads how to build a much better mousetrap. But there's no nuclear regulator on Earth that's prepared to certify that. So my contention is the thing that has to change, the, the, the moment where the nuclear energy revolution just goes completely change of direction, the whole world's energy direction changes overnight, is when a government, a major government says, okay, we've reached the point where having nuclear regulator be the bureaucratic government entity that's in the way of progress, as most government entities are, that's preventing anything from getting done because nobody will invest in these companies because the regulator's not ready to regulate. We've got to turn it around to where the national priority that we tell the people about that we're going to make our country the leader in in the global international order is we're going to create the nuclear regulator that's going to advance this industry out of the 1970s into the 2020s. And we're going to have liquid fueled molten salt uh, 
nuclear reactors that are in the form factor of shipping containers so you can deliver these things anywhere on earth in a, in a few days time and we're going to be able to build multi-gigawatt power plants by ganging those small modular nuclear reactors together and in seven to ten months we're going to be able to do what today takes seven to ten years which is to build a multi-gigawatt nuclear power plant i've got the business plan already in my head for how to build uh you know, three to five gigawatt nuclear power plants in less than a year by ganging together off the shelf, uh, small modular nuclear reactors built on assembly lines in factories. I've got it all ready to go. I know exactly how to pitch that uh, business model to investors. I'm ready to go back to work full time to do that. I'm not doing anything with any of that because there's no point to doing anything with any of that because there's no nuclear regulator on earth that's prepared to regulate what I want to productize. So what am I doing instead? I'm trying to work with as many governments as I can find, particularly the uh, the uh, oil producing nations in the Middle East and say, guys, the nuclear industry is going no place until somebody decides to do what Western governments have so far failed at, which is to really step up their nuclear certification program and say, we're going to have a nuclear regulator that's going to be part of the energy transition solution, not part of the problem. Right. And that starts tomorrow. And we're going to actively encourage uh, nuclear startups to come and bring us their latest, greatest, most wild and crazy designs. And we're going to give each of those things a chance to prove themselves and, you know, see what the best design is going to be for the future of energy. We don't have that. That doesn't exist anywhere in the world. There is no government whose attitude toward nuclear regulation is anything other than keep up the bureaucracy from 1972 status quo. Don't change anything. And all we know how to regulate are pressurized water reactors. Uh, we got to change that. We got to change it completely. And I think what happens is everybody will ignore me because they, they they always do. They'll ignore <laughs> everyone else, and we'll get to the point of the global oil and gas energy crisis. And then all of a sudden, it's now it's the Manhattan Project. Not we could have seen this years in advance, and I tried to tell them exactly what to do back in 2023. But we'll get a few years down the road, and in 2027, as the world is falling apart, and energy crisis is the the source of every problem. The answer is still going to be the same, which is what you need is a forward-thinking nuclear regulator that can certify the most advanced and most promising nuclear reactor technologies that we need in order to save humanity from the coming energy crisis. Once you do that, and this is important, once you've got the nuclear regulator that's got their shit together, it still takes about 25 years to build out all 180,000 or so nuclear, small modular nuclear reactors that you would need to completely replace fossil fuels. So there's a huge amount of work ahead of us that requires an in insane amount of very, very sophisticated high-tech manufacturing that's got to happen in the next 25 years in order to accomplish energy transition. We're not ready to even talk about that. The part that we're, we need to start with is getting governments out of the way 
and getting a, a nuclear regulatory agency somewhere on Earth that's ready to take on the most exciting and advanced nuclear uh, reactor designs and start certifying the cool stuff. Uh, and then we got to figure out how to roll that out in the rest of the world and get that certification to be respected by nuclear regulators around the globe. So there's a lot of work left to be done. Well, I think the good news and the bad news are, are one and the same from a standpoint of what will prompt them to do that faster will be a crisis. But that's also the bad news is that, the, that that's the catalyst that is required for that paradigm shift. And it's well, not going to be just people getting smart or governments getting smarter. And that's exactly the reason that I produced the uh, Energy Transition Crisis documentary series right. with the, the focus on the red word crisis. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, what I would have liked to have done is made a documentary series saying, hey, if people would listen to me, we don't have to have a crisis. We can still avoid it. Here's how to do that. Um, I didn't bother producing that when there was still time to, to avoid the crisis because I know that humanity doesn't work that way. We don't prevent crises. We only react to them. Yeah. What I'm trying to do with this docu-series is I want everybody who watches it now to take the message. This guy saw the oil and gas energy crisis of the <laughs> mid-2020s coming, and he said what the solution to it was going to be back before it started. Maybe we should listen to him now. So uh, I, I'm just trying to sow the seeds. There's people watch this now. I'm, I'm really not expecting energy transition crisis to become uh, a pop sensation right now because it's kind of nerdy stuff. It's about energy transition and energy supply. And uh, it's not just the pretty pictures of solar uh, windmills and solar arrays and so forth. I actually get into the arithmetic of how much it would take in order to replace fossil fuels and how much we've already built with solar and how come that's not enough and how much is left and so forth. Um, it's not that interesting. It's not going to be a pop sensation. It's when we have the global and uh, oil and gas energy crisis that I predict in the series that I expect maybe at that point it'll become a, uh, uh, a what do you call it? A it'll be a reference guide it'll be you know it's a, I, I look at it a little bit like a, the energy version of mike maloney's hidden secrets of money series i don't know if you ever saw any of those episodes i know that pretty much everyone we've got about a thousand people on live right now uh um, i think you know at least 90 percent of them have seen that and it just gets views it constantly gets views i mean i don't know it might be 10 years old or so but yeah i know that people are still using it and still using it as a reference point. You know, Mike Maloney is the guy I was thinking of when I produced this uh, documentary series. I've never met him. I don't know the guy, but oh, I was a really good friend of mine. Uh, I was guy. always impressed with the amount of production quality and the amount of attention to detail that he puts in. Cause he, he's kind of making the same kind of videos that you and I do. It's kind of his own personal opinion, what he thinks about the world, but he does it with higher production quality than almost anybody else does. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I tried to do this myself and realized how incredibly tedious and time-consuming and expensive yeah. it is to produce video compared to podcast audio. And you know what we're doing here, just your audience is just watching the live stream with no editing and no, yeah. no nothing. What this costs versus the way Mike does it uh, and the way I did it with Energy Transition Crisis, it's 
like a hundred times more expensive <laughs> to do it the other way. And it's it's only twice as good. I mean, maybe it's not even yeah. twice as good. And it's a right. hundred times more expensive. So my hat is off to Mike Maloney, although I never met the guy. Um, no, he's a, he's a great guy. But I cannot encourage the audience to go check out your docu-series, your version of Hidden Secrets of Money. And so let's go over the URL, Eric. It's energytransitioncrisis.org. I think Josh has got it pulled up here. Yeah, I see it on the screen. It's energytransitioncrisis.org, and that really is just a, a landing page which gets you to the YouTube uh, channel. The, I intentionally wanted to keep all the feedback and comments in YouTube because that that's what helps the YouTube algorithm promote it more. If I may, I'll just give you a quick rundown. Of, yeah, please uh, do. Chapter one is basically why do we need to transition to clean energy and break our addiction to fossil fuels with an emphasis on if you're not persuaded by the climate change argument, I'll make the peak cheap oil argument for why it's important, even if you don't believe in climate change. Episode two is the master plan for what it's going to take, why we need to replace most internal combustion engines with uh, electric motors and how we're going to supply those electric motors, what's going to what's going to provide the, the electricity to make them turn. Um, Episode three is entirely about predicting a global oil and gas energy crisis in the mid to late 2020s, why I think it's completely unavoidable now, and why I think it could have dire uh, consequences for the global economy. Then the solution really to that is what we have to do is start figuring out a realistic plan for energy transition. Uh, what the politicians have on the table now is just fantasies and pipe dreams. It's not real. I, I cover why it's not real. And I get to the things that are possible. There's two possible ways to provide all of the baseload energy we need to get rid of fossil fuels by 2050. One is deep geothermal, the idea of drilling deep holes in the ground all the way into the Earth's crust to the depth where it's extremely hot, where we can get to hot rock that we can take heat energy out of, use it to produce energy at the surface problem with that is it costs so much to drill those wells way deep into the earth. So you got to go like 10 kilometers of depth in order to be able to get to the hottest rock. So it's just not economic for that to work yet. I think there's room for some breakthroughs in drilling. So that's really what episode four is about is deep geothermal. Five, six, and seven is what it took three episodes to tell the nuclear story. Episode five mm -hmm. is pros and cons of nuclear. Uh, you can't get someone over their objections to nuclear if they object to nuclear, but they're not really sure why. They just kind of object to it on general principles. So I try to get to what the very good reasons are that you ought to object to old school nuclear, what the, the problems have been. And then uh, episode six is advanced nuclear technology, which solves all of those problems. Episode seven is uh, small modular nuclear reactor technology, which will solve the cost and schedule overrun problem and make nuclear energy affordable. So it costs less than energy from, or less than electricity from oil and gas. Um, and then uh, finally, episode eight is just tying it all together in my recommendations for, for what the world needs to do. But it's basically, uh, the story is we've got to do energy transition. It's going to be harder and more expensive than anybody thinks. It's going to lead to wars. It's already leading to wars. We're going to have a major energy crisis as part of it. Eventually, we'll come out the other side of it in a nuclear-enabled age, which will be better. I predict it will be more about small modular nuclear reactors than it will be about large 
uh, bespoke on-site construction, conventional nuclear. But that's still a, a, an economic battleground that that's yet to be fought. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Uh, and it's it's going to be very interesting times. So this fourth turning is not over. And I think energy policy is going to be one of the most important things to sort out in the next first turning. Yeah. And just for investors, uh, just to be clear, when Eric's talking about crisis, what he's talking about is higher prices. Yes, I'm talking oh. about much higher. <laughs> I just wanted to connect the dots there for people. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean that energy prices just keep going up. It means that high energy prices will define the economy. And it may be that high energy prices get to, let's say, 150 bucks, and that's enough to completely cripple the economy and throw us into depression. And that crashes energy prices back down to right. 50 bucks. And it goes back up to 150 bucks because of tight supply even more quickly than it did this time. And that crashes us back down to 50 bucks again. And it's just a cycle that we can't get out of. So it's not necessarily that you can't go wrong on betting on higher energy prices. The energy prices will come in cycles, but the the cycles are going to be trending higher and higher over time. Great point. Great point. All right, Eric, as always, it's a pleasure talking and fascinating. I can't encourage everyone to go to that website enough. Again, uh, that's energy crisis. Energy transition crisis.org. Okay, buddy. All right, a good one, and I'm 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 looking forward to downloading the most recent version of Macro Voices or episode. <laughs> as soon as we get done, that's what I'm doing. I, I'm getting reports that we're we're having technical difficulties. Lynn Alden is this week's episode that should be up, and uh, if that's not on Apple Podcasts, we're still trying to figure out why. All right, have a good one. Okay, we'll see you.